Well, as you know, Rethink Week was last week. It's when we kind of went out, did some evangelism on campus. We had a few extra talks, all that sort of thing. And I really enjoyed it. I really did. I kind of, sometimes I feel like I thrive on things that people find really weird and scary. Um, but I really enjoyed just kind of the angst, you know, can I answer those questions? Uh, can I have a good conversation about Jesus? Will these people stone me? Or will they just think I'm an idiot? All that sort of stuff that kind of runs through your mind. Um, I had a lot of really good conversations with people. It was really encouraging. We talked about all sorts of things, you know, suffering in the world. What's, what's the place of suffering? What's God doing with that? Talked about life after death. Is there really life after death? Talked about religious conflict. You know, should we just end all religions and maybe that might solve the world's problems or should we keep them? All these sorts of topics we were chatting about. And um, I actually felt like I could make a bit of headway, you know, on some of those topics. We were getting a bit of agreement with people and, and felt like, yeah, that was going well. But what I noticed with our conversations was that over and over again, we actually kept coming back to one question in particular. That one question was, how can Jesus be the only way? I don't know how we ended up there, uh, but that seemed to be what kept happening. Uh, you know, People would kind of agree, oh yeah, maybe the church does have a place in the world. Yeah, maybe that suffering thing makes some sense. But how can you say that Jesus is the only way? Uh, it seemed to be the place where people actually got more offended than anything else. Uh, I'll just flick through a couple of slides. Uh, some people uh, said things like this. This is probably not an exact quote. I couldn't remember everything. Uh, but people say, you can't really believe that, can you, Steve? That's so arrogant that Jesus is the only way for you to say that. Uh, so you're saying, are you, Steve, that religions, all other religions are wrong and you've got it right? Oh, yeah, good on you. What makes you so sure? Um, another person said, no, surely, surely all the religions are equally good, aren't they? They're just different paths to the same God. These were some of the things that people were saying. And I, I actually wonder, how, how do you think you'd go answering that question? That's not rhetorical. I want you to take five minutes, two minutes. Um, have a chat to the person next to you. See how you go. Uh, if someone's firing those at you, have a little go, have a break. I'm going to get a drink of water and I'll be back.
to a close. If you nailed that question, if you just, you know, if you've got the perfect answer, then you can tune out for the next 25 minutes or so as we look at Revelation 5. Just have a little sleep. Uh, for everyone else, uh, we're going to open up uh, this fifth chapter of the book of Revelation uh, because I actually think it, it helps us answer this question. Uh, it helps us see uh, well, firstly, it does help us see, yes, Jesus is the only way. But it also helps us see something amazing. It helps us see that the fact that Jesus, that it's Jesus who is the only way, the way he loves us, uh, that is actually really great news uh, when we understand it. Uh, There's three movements in this chapter. And the first section, it actually starts off uh, in the first four verses, it's there on your sheet, by showing us that actually no one, no one in heaven or earth, is actually worthy to bring about God's plans for salvation. Uh, This chapter, chapter 5, it continues this vision of reality that we've been seeing. uh, If you remember back a couple of weeks ago when we were in Revelation 4, remember John kind of peeked through the doorway into the throne room of heaven. Uh, That's what we saw in Revelation chapter 4. And Revelation 5 continues that same vision. It's the second half. Two weeks ago we saw that amazing scene of someone who was seated on a throne, it was God, and God was described as the creator, and he was described as the judge. He was all-powerful. And where Revelation chapter 4 ended, if you were here, if you can remember, was that all creatures, all people, everything that was made, fell down in worship before God. Ah, It says there in in the end of chapter 4, they took off their crowns, they laid them on the ground before the true king. Now, that was a picture, that was the idealistic picture of what will happen in the very end, uh, when all people from all places, no matter who they are, they will acknowledge the creator God as king. And what we see in chapter 5 uh, is that that picture, we're still in the same picture, still in the same vision, uh, the picture actually zooms in just a little bit. It's a little bit like a camera. You know, you hit the zoom button, you're focusing on one thing in particular. And here we see that we're focusing on something that is in the right hand of the one who sits on the throne. Uh, if you look there in verse 1, it says this, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on a throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Uh, John, what does he see? Well, he sees a scroll. It's got writing on both sides. And this scroll, well, what does it stand for? It actually stands for God's plans and purposes for the world. It stands for God's secret plan, the mystery. It's described elsewhere in the New Testament. The mystery of how God will overcome the forces of evil, his enemies, the, the things that wage war against him and his people. Uh, This scroll, it actually contains the plans for how God will overcome those great enemies of his, 
of Satan, sin and death. How do we know this? Uh, well, there's no actual mention in Revelation chapter 5 of, of you know, what's written on the scroll. But if you're in the New Testament and you're trying to figure out, well, what is this scroll? Well, a good place to go is, well, where else in the Bible do we see a scroll? Do we see something that's been closed up? Uh, you might have noticed there in Daniel chapter 12, um, it's actually called a book. Uh, there was a book back then that was closed. Um, it's actually the same word. Daniel 12 in book, it's Biblios. Uh, Revelation 5, scroll, it's still Biblios. It's the same word. Um, they just kind of go with scroll in Revelation 5 because it's a bit weird to have seals on a book. Like, where do you put them? It just seems to make more sense uh, to have seven seals on a scroll. So they kind of translate the word scroll. But so we've got this scroll, right? We're trying to work out what it is, what it might contain, what's written on it. And so what we do is we go, well, when was the last time a scroll or a book was actually sealed up? And the last time in the Bible was Daniel chapter 12. In fact, it's the only other time in the Bible when a scroll or a book was sealed up in such a way. And so when you go back to Daniel chapter 12, which we read earlier, just in those first four verses, we saw back then was that that scroll that actually spoke about some things that would happen in the last days, uh, in the time just before the end. Uh, the scroll spoke about how people would be delivered. Uh, it spoke about how people's names would be written in a book. Uh, it spoke about how those who have died, how some would rise to everlasting life. And it spoke about how some would rise to everlasting contempt. Uh, that was the scroll in Daniel 12, in those first four verses. And back then what happened was the scroll was shut up, it was sealed, and no one could open it. And so when we get to Revelation chapter 5, uh, if you know your Old Testament well, you know, if you're a bit of a Daniel scholar, you go, hey, I know that scroll, I remember it from Daniel chapter 5, Daniel 12, Daniel chapter 12. That's the same scroll. See, no one has been able to open it. Uh, this scroll that speaks of how people will be delivered from Satan's power. This scroll, scroll that speaks about how sin will no longer define people because they'll have a new name. They'll be written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Uh, this scroll which says that actually even death won't be the end anymore. Uh, this is the scroll you see. Uh, the scroll is the plans and purposes of God for how he will overcome those great enemies of Satan, sin and death. And in verse 2, in Revelation 5, uh, what we see is that there is a mighty angel. And this mighty angel is looking for someone. He is searching for someone who is worthy to open the scroll. Have a look there in verse 2. He says, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Who is worthy, he says, to open this scroll of God's plans for future redemption of the world. Who's worthy to open it and bring it about? Who's going to be able to do this? Can anyone open it? Can anyone do this, the angel says? Who can overthrow God's enemies of Satan, sin and death? Anyone? Who's going to bring about those last few chapters of Revelation? They give us so much hope. You know, Revelation 21 and 22, they speak about how the new creation will come, how 
Every tear will be wiped away. How there will be no more sin or sickness or pain or death. Someone's going to wipe them all away so there will be no longer. Who's going to, who's going to do that? <coughs> Can you do that? I know I can't do that. I'm not worthy to do that. Can anyone do it? The angel says. The silence is deafening. No one can open it. No one is worthy. This was one of those old Western movies. I reckon there'd be a bit of tumbleweed just going, blowing across, you know. No one can step up to the plate. No one can do it. No one has been found in heaven or on earth. Have a look there in verse 3. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, no one in all the world anywhere could open this scroll or even look inside it. And check out John's response. He weeps. He says, I wept and I wept, John says, because no one was found worthy. No one could open the scroll or even look inside. No one is worthy. No one is able. And John weeps. So the question we have to ask here is why is John weeping? What is it that's brought this grown man to tears, that's broken him? What's the fact he weeps? Because without someone to open the scroll, without someone who can bring about God's purposes and plans for the world, well, there is no hope. Without someone to open the scroll, suffering and death will just continue for God's people. Uh, There will be endless suffering. There will be no hope beyond the grave. So what's the one thing that's worse than suffering, that's worse than persecution? Well, it's meaningless suffering, isn't it? That's to know that you suffer with no hope, that there's no hope beyond the grave. See, suffering is actually bearable if you know that maybe it makes some sense, that maybe there's a God who provides some hope beyond the grave. See, our brothers and sisters around the world at the moment in Iraq, they are suffering for their faith. And as hard and as evil as that suffering is, they can endure that suffering to the point of death. Why? Well, because they know that glory is to come. They know that they can hang on to those words which we read just a couple of weeks ago in Revelation 2, But Jesus said, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. That's what they hang on to in that suffering. They know that there's hope beyond the grave. But to suffer meaninglessly, to know that there is no hope, to live a life where it's just a cycle of ongoing suffering and pain and there is no end to that, no new future, no new creation, no ultimate goal, no hope, no heaven. Well, that is what makes this grown man, John, weep. He weeps and he weeps. I think we just don't feel it that much, do we? Uh, We don't feel it that much in comfortable Bendigo in Australia. We don't know what that kind of suffering and persecution would be like. I think we would weep, wouldn't we, if we were over there in Iraq at the moment? 
But we would weep even more if we knew that that was just senseless suffering. That there was no hope. Nothing beyond the grave. See, the angel, he says here, the angel, the declaration he makes, he says, no one can bring about God's plans. No one has been able to step up to the plate. No one is worthy to bring about this new future. In fact, it's actually a critique of all the major religions of the world, isn't it? No one can do it. So just for a moment, I want us to think about what is it that actually makes the major religions of the world similar? Uh, The ones apart from Christianity, I mean. Uh, I think it's these three things in particular. Number one, they all actually claim to know things about God. Their founders say the path to God is like this. They make some claims about how we can go and we can be with God in the end. And number two, all the other major religions in the world are actually based on performance. They're based on our performance. Our acceptance to God in the end depends on how we perform in life now. It's a little bit like a ladder. You know, we have to climb the ladder with our good works, our good deeds, and hopefully we might get there in the end. Uh, In various ways, all the other religions say something like, if you obey, if you're worthy enough, then God will accept you. Uh, Buddhism has the Eightfold Path, Islam, the Five Pillars, Hindus, they have karma, which is essentially just if you do more good than bad, then you'll be okay, then you'll be found worthy. The Jews have the Torah, the laws that they must keep in order to appease God. See, at their heart, they're all performance-based, aren't they? They're all actually ladders that we have to climb, that we have to prove our own worthiness to God. Thirdly, the third thing that unites all the other religions is that all their founders are dead. Uh, there's a Wikipedia article, uh, and it's this. I did a screenshot. You know, you can do Control-Shift-4. It's kind of fun. Wikipedia has an article. It's called The Burial Places of Founders of World Religions. And it's great. I mean, you can go there and you can find out where Buddha's buried. Uh, his ashes are actually scattered in some particular place in Sri Lanka. You can go and find his tooth somewhere, apparently, if that's what you're into. Muhammad's grave is in Medina. The Jews, they have a cave called the Cave of the Patriarchs. It's in Hebron. Confucius, he's buried in China. See, all the founders of world religions, what happened to them in the end? Well, they died, didn't they? They died, they were defeated by death. Even death got them. No matter how much they claimed to be about God, no matter how good people they were, they died. Death defeated them. No one is the claim here in Revelation chapter 5. No one is worthy to execute God's plan to overcome this problem of death, the result of sin, the result of listening to Satan. See, no one is worthy enough to walk into heaven. No one is worthy to make it into the presence of the holy God in order to take the scroll from him and bring about his plans. We're not worthy, are we? No matter how good we might be, no matter how nice we might think we are, ultimately none of us, none of us have earned the right to be in the presence of our Creator. We've all actually chosen to be cast far away from him in our sin. 
See, we can't do it. Me, humans alone, are not worthy because all humans sin. Uh, if you've ever tried to climb a ladder to God, if you've ever tried to show yourself worthy, to, to show off your good deeds, then if you're anything like me, you probably know you didn't make it that far. You might have got a couple of rungs up and you probably stumbled over the next one. Uh, we're all unworthy, aren't we? How can there be any way? How can there be only one way? seems to me the better question is how, how is there any way? How is there any hope? Because none of us are worthy. But friends, Revelation 5, it doesn't end at verse 4. There is hope. Uh, we don't have to go on weeping like John, in case that was you, because in verse 5 something astounding has happened. Have a look there in verse 5. John writes, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seals. See, someone can do it, right? He's described as a lion. He's strong and mighty. He's, he's a king in the line of the great king, King David. This is the Messiah, the, the long-awaited one of the Old Testament. Someone has come and he can bring God's plan to fruition. What has this lion done? Well, he's triumphed. Uh, there in verse 5, do you notice? He has triumphed. It is past tense. It's something he has done. It's already happened. He has overcome. He has conquered. And because of his triumph, because of something he has done, he is worthy to open the scroll. He is worthy to bring about God's plans of a new future, of a new hope. And then in verse 6, as the camera kind of pans around a little bit more, we actually get a glimpse of this fearsome, mighty, victorious lion. Look there in verse 6. He says, And then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain. Standing in the centre of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. See, John looks up. He looks up to see a picture of power, a lion, a king. And what does he see? He sees a lamb. It's cut. It's bloody. It's weak. I grew up on a farm. I reckon if there's ever a picture of weakness, it's a young lamb. I mean, they are just so hopeless, aren't they? When they're new, like, you can just bump them like that. You don't even have to put effort in and they fall over. I mean, if there's ever... Don't do it, it's me. I mean, if there's ever a picture of weakness, if you wanted to choose something that looked weak in the eyes of the world, you would choose a lamb. And to think that it looks as though it's been slain. See, what is God saying to us here in his word? Well, I think this picture, it's supposed to surprise us, isn't it? It's supposed to surprise us because it actually reveals a surprising thing about the heart of our God that we meet in the Bible. See, at the heart of every other religion, there's a power play going on. Uh, You prove yourself to me, the other gods say. 
Now you climb that ladder. You show me that you're worthy. You do that and then I in my might may accept you. Every other religion, at their heart, their God is all about power. But the Christian God, well he's different, isn't he? See, at the heart of the God of the Bible, there is a sacrifice, a lamb that has been slain. The heart of our God is sacrificial love for the sake of the other. See, the message of Christianity is actually very different to every other religion that's out there. Uh, Where the founders of other religions claim to know things about God, the founder of Christianity, Jesus, He actually claims to be God. Kind of ups the ante there a little bit, doesn't he? Uh, It's a claim that this powerful lion, he is the son of God. But he put off his power and he came in weakness. He came in the weakness of human flesh to make God known to us. Secondly, where every other religion is about performance and proving your worth to God, Christianity flips that on the head and it replaces the ladder with a cross. See, what the Bible teaches us so clearly is that none of us are good enough. None of us can climb a ladder to God in our own good works. We're all flawed, we're all selfish in different ways. But God, the God that we meet in the Bible... The God who reveals himself to us actually meet his heart. The heart of our God is love. And from that heart of love, he does something amazing for us. He descends that ladder. He comes down to us. And he dies on a cross. See, the cross, you see, it's actually God's way of accepting unworthy people like us. It's the way that unworthy people can actually stand worthy, not because we did anything, but because Jesus gives us his worthiness. And this, it reveals the heart of God to us, that he'd rather sacrifice himself for us in love than live without us. Is that how you understand God of the Bible? He loves you that much? He'd rather sacrifice himself for you than live without you. That's amazing, isn't it? Thirdly, what we see is that though the lamb was slain, he conquered death. He defeated it. Unlike all the other founders of world religions, Jesus' tomb is empty. You can go there if it's the right one. No one's really sure. But he isn't there, the angel said. He's risen. Jesus has defeated death. See, how can Jesus say that he's the only way? How can we say that Jesus is the only way? Well, there's only one way, because ultimately there's only one who's worthy. There's only one who did more than just claim to know the way to God. There's only one who descended the ladder from God to come to us. And most significantly, there's only one man who has ever defeated the greatest of our enemies, death itself. See, Jesus, when he died on that cross, he died for our sin and he defeated our death and he walked out of that grave. He rose. 
And it's the guarantee of our hope. That's why Jesus is the only way. Because of those three things. Because he is God. Because he died for us. And because he rose from the dead. And now, you might go, well, it's good, isn't it? I'm a Christian, I knew that. Jesus is the only way. And I reckon, actually, that that can actually be a bit of a danger for us. Uh, Because what happens, there's actually danger in every absolute truth that you know. The danger is that if you know it, and you know that other people don't know it, you can actually start to feel a little bit superior. You can think, yeah, I've got it. Jesus is the only way. And you can start getting proud about that. You can start maybe having some power plays going on with other people. I see some Christians who I know, and sadly I think they're very wrong on this, they respond to this fact, knowing that Jesus is the only way, and they say, yes, that's right, Jesus is the only way. I've got it right. And you've got it wrong. So there's a danger there, isn't there? I think if we're not on our guard, uh, we can begin to feel superior to others. Uh, See, if you know that your truth is the truth, it's very easy to start feeling superior. Uh, If you know your truth is the only truth, it's pretty easy to start caricaturing everything else, start stereotyping others. And once you start doing that, well, it's actually a very small step to start marginalising others, to start oppressing others, and even to be violently (coughs) oppressive against others. I think that's actually what's happening with the ISIS movement at the moment. Uh, That movement in Iraq, those radical Islamists, they believe that they have the only truth, and they are taking the world literally by force with it. They believe that Allah is the only way, And so they are marginalising and violently using their power to spread that by force, by violence. Uh, It's actually true what people say, that exclusive claims, that absolute truth, can lead to violence. That is a true statement. But you know, what we've been saying all night, I hope you can see this, is that Christianity actually exists on a different playing field. Christianity is very different. It actually doesn't surprise me that Muslims would try to use power in order to convert the world. That doesn't surprise me at all, because that's actually the nature of the God that they believe in. They're just reflecting him. Uh, See, when you think about it, every other major religion, the other thing that combines them, that makes them similar, is that they believe in a single God, a single deity, don't they? Uh, one God who created people. So why did that God create people? Well, it was because he needed them. He was in need of something from them. He was lonely or something like that. And so he needed to create people in order for them to do stuff for him. It's a power play. But Christianity is very different, isn't it? So the God we meet in the Bible, he's not a single deity. He's a trinity. Three persons who exist in perfectly loving relationships, perfectly satisfied in each other because they sacrificially love and give to one another. They've been doing that for all eternity. 
And so what that means is that God didn't actually need us for anything. He doesn't need us to fulfill anything in himself. There's no relational deficit going on in God. But he did create us. Why did he create us? Well, he created us not so that we would serve his needs, but simply so we could share in his love. That's why he created us. Because he wanted us to know what it was like to live in that kind of love, loving relationships. And that's the reason, you see, that the nature of our God, the nature of our God is love that's not power, because he's Trinity. The very nature of the Christian God, it's sacrificial love for the sake of others. And when you look at it, when you look at Jesus dying on the cross who exemplifies that, well, it doesn't look like power, does it? It actually looks like weakness. It looks like the very opposite of power, to think that God would descend that ladder for us and that he would die on that cross for us. And as he does, that he would pray for his enemies. Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they do. It just looks so weak, doesn't it? There's no power play there. Just simple sacrificial love for the sake of others. It looks weak and pathetic. It looks like a slain lamb walking into the throne room when you're expecting a lion. But friends, this revelation of God is what we truly need, isn't it? See, what our world needs right now is not more people with their power plays trying to take over the world by force. Now, what our our world needs is more people who will sacrifice themselves for the sake of others because they love their neighbour more than they love themselves. need people who will sacrifice their time and their reputation as they go out into the world and as they humbly point people to Jesus, not because there's any worthiness in themselves, but because he alone is worthy and salvation is found in Christ alone. So I want to finish up just by focusing on two ways that I think we can do that. Two ways that that actually look really weak and pathetic uh, in the eyes of the world, but in the eyes of Jesus, they actually bring about the very purposes that he died for. Are these two things? They are, you might have guessed it, they're prayer and evangelism. And when you think about it, when you think about maybe reflecting on our Rethink Week, that might have looked pretty weak. But let me show you from, from these passages. Have a look there in verse 8. So in verse 8 you see there that just after the Lamb has taken the scroll, uh, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, they all fall down before this weak-looking Lamb. And then in verse 8, they've got something with them. They've got harps. They're playing some music or something like that. And they've also got these golden bowls full of incense, which we're told are the prayers of the saints. Isn't that an amazing picture? These elders in heaven have these golden bowls and they're filled with our prayers. And they're holding them before God and the Lamb. I don't know if you've ever thought about your prayers that much. Sometimes I think about prayer and I think, what am I doing that for? Like, I just feel like it's weak and pathetic and it's a, it can feel like a waste of time, right? 
Have a look at the reality here. Our ordinary, faithful, humble prayers, they appear in heaven as these precious bowls of sweet-smelling incense before God. They are a priestly offering to him. So I think so often we feel like, what prayer meeting, 12 o'clock on a Monday, I don't want to go to that. You know, we rule the world through our prayers. The world changes as God hears our prayers. God says, you do not have because you do not ask. I'd love it if we could gather more and more to pray. It's how God changes the world. It's how he extends his kingdom. We can do nothing without God answering our prayers. Your prayers, I hope you can see here, they are ridiculously precious. They are ridiculously powerful. They make it into the very throne room in heaven and they are offered to God as a priestly offering. But secondly, as we look at this new song that gets sung in verses 9 to 10, and what we see is that we've actually been saved by Jesus for a purpose. And we've been saved, have a look there, end of verse 10, we've been saved so that we would extend God's reign on the earth. Uh, verse 9 and 10 say this, And they sang a new song, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. See, ever since Jesus died and rose 2,000 years ago, that good news, that gospel, that the Lamb was slain and that he ransomed people's lives, that by his blood we've been ransomed from the hold of Satan, that sin and death have been conquered because of his blood, that news, well, it's just kind of taken off, hasn't it, when you think about it? It's spread to the ends of the earth, to every tribe and language and people and nation. It's what Jesus actually commanded his first disciples there at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 28. Jesus said, All authority has been given to me to go and make disciples of every nation. Start in Jerusalem and then Judea and then take it to the ends of the earth. Extend my reign, that's what Jesus said. It's what we're called to do. And how do we do it? Well, we do it as we reflect the character of our God. We don't do it by force. We don't do it with power and violence. No, we do it by humbly speaking the gospel in love. We do it by upholding the truth with gentleness as we speak to our neighbours, to our classmates, to our friends. We extend God's reign, his eternal reign, simply by opening our mouths and telling people the good news of Jesus that the lamb was slain so that they could have life. And so often it feels weak. So often it looks pretty pathetic. Let me just finish with Paul's words here in 1 Corinthians. Paul says this is what we do. We preach Christ. We preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, 
Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. These are the things we're called to do. It's pretty simple, really. Pray, tell people about Jesus, live lives that glorify him because he's worthy. And we do it not because we're trying to prove ourselves to anyone or anything. No, Jesus has already saved us from that. We do it simply because we know that we are unworthy servants and we are in the power of the King and he's asked us to extend his reign, to tell people about our glorious Saviour, the Lord Jesus who died for the sins of the world in weakness, but ultimately will bring about this new creation in power and glory. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we see that picture in the throne room of heaven. And we are expecting in our worldly eyes a powerful conqueror, but we see a weak lamb that looks like it's slain. Father, we thank you that you are a God whose very heartbeat is sacrificial love. You would rather give yourself up for us then hang on to your own life. So, Father, I pray that we would echo that in our lives. I pray that we would be people who are so captured by what you have done for us that we would give up ourselves, that we would give up our time, our reputation, give up all these things so that we would pray for the saints, pray for the lost, and that we would speak the good news of Jesus until we die or until you return. We just pray this for Jesus' sake and for his glory. Amen.